Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Now, in 2023, we had an incredible number of amazing podcasts where we spoke with leaders and they had all this fantastic wisdom. And sometimes it's hard to distill all of that down. So what I've asked is for my team to create a collage of all the great tips, all the great insights, all the great stories. So we have two episodes for you. This is episode number one. And next week, we'll be coming back at you with another. So we're just going to dive straight in. We'll go right to the heart. So tell us about your best boss. This gentleman was well-liked throughout the organization. He rapidly accelerated through the ranks, through his, his merit, because he was an achiever. He went to bad. He was not one of these persons that would say, that's not my job. He did whatever it took. And I respected him because he would understand if I needed his review or approval on something by a certain date and time. He would ask me, he's like, James, I can't get to until tomorrow. Is that okay? What time tomorrow can I give you to approve that so that you can get what you need done? He understood the big picture. And that was something in a small nugget I took away where today I still do this where I tell people I need this back by this day, this time because of him. Because I think people don't realize that, that you think you, you know when you need it back by, you know, in order to take that next step. Right. But you don't tell people if you don't tell people, they don't know. So I make them aware of it. They may not need to understand the entire process, but at least if you explain, I need this back by this time, this day, you gave them the time and date so they could be held accountable And again, if you're dealing with the right professional. So now this is the biggest thing that in terms of, remember I outlined in terms of being a leader, one of the top things that I say is fairness and integrity. Now this is an example of extreme integrity. So one of the clients that we had as a business to this company is the small company, you might've heard of them, they're called Walmart. So, <laughs> yes, well, so, so probably an important and, customer. Any order from Walmart was a minimum of a million dollars. Not even kidding. If they call, everybody would run and, and do whatever it took. So we had this opportunity with Walmart to put in our product in a display tray. And it was going to be what's called an end cap. And for people who don't know, an end cap is when you're walking up and down the aisles, you have your product displayed and is very prominently displayed, is usually pushed with a lot of marketing and advertising. So we had this opportunity. So for us, we were able to create the artwork in-house, you know, manufacture it. We manufacture it in the States, so it was easy for us to do. So we were able to do this, but throughout that process, there's a lot of approvals that were needed, and my boss was one of the final stops, and he approved the price point of $0.49 for the product, which was to be prominently printed on the tray because it was this promotion, an in-and-out promotion, meaning it was going to drop for the store. It was going to be in for a very short time and come out. But it was like a million-dollar order. 
So that price was a retail price, 49 cents, okay? So it went to market, printed, it was displayed. And then all of a sudden we got all these phone calls and my boss came up to me. He's like, James, he's like, who approved the 49 cents uh, price point? And I said, well, you did. And then it went through other channels. And then he said, can you pull the job jacket so I could see the history? So I did. And we went through every department, legal, everything. And it was even on the materials that you have to follow to be able to produce the item, everything. And it was on there. And it was the wrong price point. It was supposed to be 88 cents. So you're looking, yes, at 50% off of the retail margin. So the CEO is obviously completely involved in this, looking to find out who approved this. So he said, my name's on this, so I'm going to say I approve this. And he literally took all the blame, despite there being like 12 other people that could have caught it, that should have caught it. He didn't care. He said, it's under me. I'm going to tell him that I approved it. And he did. He knew that he could lose his job. I mean, it was over a million dollar order. And he went to the CEO and he talked to them and he expressed to them that this was something that I approved. And he took the fall for it, took the blame for it. The company lost a lot of money. And he was just, for me, that show, the highest form of integrity has stood by me forever, even till this day. So many times when people are terrified of blame and they're so scared of who's going to take the fall. And I just think, why did we make the environment like that? Right? Like, you know, because it is true that if a team plays a game, like, it's likely one person's going to drop the ball and it's going to suck, you know? And so, (laughs) but when do you like, when do you just stand up for the fact that like, yeah, I made a mistake. You know, I think that we haven't created cultures that permit you to make a mistake. And I love that he just stood up for it. And all of a sudden you have a culture that says, sometimes we mess up and we're, we're not going to take it lightly, but we're also not going to say that it's a culture where you can't ever have a mess up. The first one that came to mind, his name is Jerry, and it struck me from the very first meeting, my first interview, he created the safe space for me and showed this incredible interest in me. And I ended up sharing so much more about myself, my personal life that I intended. He opened me like a can opener and he was a professional interviewer. I mean, that was his thing. He was an assessor. And that's what he ended up teaching me was how to assess leaders But I was not prepared for that. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? (laughs) I said, I'm never going to get this job. And yet, sharing all this personal stuff about my own spiritual journey and and starting to meditate and stuff, actually, he was very interested and thought that was great. So, So I didn't flop. He hired me and subsequently taught me to trust my intuition and my gut using that incredible supportive essentially loving stance that he had. I didn't think of it at the time, but as I think back on it now, that's really what he was expressing. He was a really good listener. And, you know, as I started thinking, and I always think about principles, what, what, you know, what are the themes? Empathy and listening are top of my list because that showed his support for me and interest in me. It wasn't just, okay, I'm going to tell you and teach you because he had years of that he could give me. But what I really took away was his belief in me. 
that started with the next, the biggest assignment we started with is he asked me to research the best assessment tools out there. He had been using the same tools for like 10, 15 years and they were old. I mean, he loved them and they were like his magic crystal ball, but he wanted me to go find him the new things. And I just thought, this is wild. And I dove into it, brought them to him and he was very open to experimenting with them. I must have something. I, I was this graduate student. I knew nothing and felt I had no kind of things to add. And he showed me that I had tremendous things to add. And that, so my confidence just blossomed. My professional identity blossomed. So that's really what I got from him. The other thing that I was thinking about, Christine, was so amazing. He would interrupt himself to listen to me. So we'd be talking and I would take in a breath of air as if I'm going to speak. And he would, he would interrupt himself. He would stop. And I feel bad because like, I actually wanted to hear what he was going to say. And I, you know, I had no, no experience. I, you know, there's nothing important that I was going to say. And I asked him to explain this. And he said, well, when I'm speaking, I'm not learning. And it was just so powerful to me. Like, yes, he too wanted to learn, even if it wasn't important. What he taught me was, wow, I should shut up <laughs> and listen better. So that was, that was, and, and really learned again about business and building relationships with clients and also about listening in a different way. He had this expression, he would say, when I give to the universe, it gives back. I, mean, I love that he's one. A really hard-nosed business person, but he had this philosophy of giving, and that it wasn't just about okay, go, go, take, take. You know, it was about giving to clients, and when you give, you get back. Giving things away for free was his philosophy, and what I learned. How does he build relationships with clients? He gave his time, his attention, his expertise for free. My best boss was my first boss. And it, oh, it jumps right out for me because I feel so lucky in my career to have started out with a best boss. His name is Max Landsbaum, and he's sort of known for being a best boss. He made his career, he, he works in retail, and he kind of has two signature strengths. One is that he can make almost any situation profitable. And then the other is he's a tremendous developer of people. So almost no matter who he works with, he can pull out of them whatever their strengths are and help them to be useful at their job. So he was always great with people who were quirky or people who were different or people like me who didn't understand their job and might not have been doing so well right out of college. And so that versatility in leadership is something that you see it valued more and more now, but he was sort of an early adopter of strength finders. At Target, that's where I started my career was Target. They have an executive, they call it an executive leadership program. And so what basically that means is you come into a field retail position and you're responsible for running a team of people and a department. So you're 22 years old, you have a team of 25 people, and you're supposed to drive results through this team who has more work experience than you, more retail experience, knows the environment better. I had never worked in retail before. I wasn't a very good delegator. And I definitely didn't understand some of the key components of feedback. And so Max kind of, you were saying you have a puppy by your desk. He kind of treated me like a puppy, like very broke it down to basics. I remember one time I had this shoe transition. Target was doing this major change to how they presented footwear. Right. And I took the instructions looked at the number of hours that it was supposed to take to complete the transition and decided, okay, I guess that's what I have to do myself. Oh no. <laughs> I remember where I had an 18 hour work day. 
the project was due. I, it was every shoes were all over the place, in boxes, out of boxes. Somebody from the overnight team tried to help me, but it was so bad, like just a complete fail. And I remember Max came in in the morning and said, okay, Maureen, we have to go look at the shoe department. And, you know, like a puppy, you're just so embarrassed. You know, you did yeah. a bad job. And we walked over and he said, okay, well, explain this. Why don't you tell me what happened? So instead of kind of taking that opportunity to scold me or yell at me or any of which I could have deserved, he gave me a chance to provide my own feedback. And I said, okay, well, I, I failed to delegate. I tried to do it all by myself. I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't prepare in advance. And now here's where we are. I said, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, okay, I, I need your help. What should I do about it? Because I really didn't know. And at that point, he came in, explained it to me, explained how to get myself out of the situation that I had created. And then that was it. We moved on. And so to have a leader who's kind of willing to have that level of patience and that level of, if his boss had walked in that day, he would have been in as much trouble as I was. But he was seasoned enough in his career to let me make my own mistake and then learn from it and then do better going forward. There's a lot of people that wouldn't have let you fail. At 11 o'clock at night, he would have said, give it to me. I'm going to do it myself. You're not competent enough. Right. And having a leader who's willing to sort of have skin in the game with you and give you the space to fail, knowing that they would share in that failure and they're built up enough in their own career that it doesn't scare them. And I think I think that's what makes a good leader is having that willingness to say, I can be a buffer for my team. I can let them learn. It's the insecure leaders who say, no, 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 I have to micromanage your success because your success is a reflection of my success and I can't afford to have a mistake here. It's like they say in college, right? If you read the syllabus, you'll be fine. Starting my career, I wasn't doing a very good job of that. Having that key lesson to slow down, read the instructions before you go forward, have a plan before you move. That that's a lesson that's stuck with me this whole time. Several years ago, I had a boss, her name's Anna, and I started to get feedback that I was doing a good job with execution, but I needed to be strategic. I don't know if you've ever gotten that feedback before that you need to be strategic. And then you say, well, what does that mean? And you hear a whole bunch of jargon that you can't take action on. This woman, her name's Anna, she said to me, let me tell you what it means to be strategic. You need to think six months ahead. That's it. If you think six months ahead, I promise you will stop getting feedback that you need to be more strategic. That has been worth its weight in gold. I do a huge amount of coaching with female leaders. And there's often exactly what you said, like mid-career, there's this moment where we're still waiting for permission to be invited to be the strategic thinker. And if we don't start to demonstrate the strategic thinking, the world's not going to look at us and say, hey, I could picture that person in a, as a VP or a chief officer. And so there's that like moment where execution is what got us, you know, really strong accolades out of the gate. But then mid-career, it starts to stall out a little. I'm lucky because I'm in HR, which lends itself to thinking six months ahead. Because I remember the first time I had a chance to apply it, we were in the annual review cycle. And so essentially all I had to do to start being strategic was start asking, oh, and what do you hope that this person accomplishes by the mid-year review? Ah. Or by this time next year, how big do you think this department will be? It's it's actually, it's not even hard if you break it down into that 
think six months ahead timeframe. So a lot of it was about challenging me. I'm, I'm an optimist at the highest end of the scale. So he spent a lot of time individually with each of us, his direct reports and our direct reports to really get to know us personally which sounds very basic, but it's so important. And that's not always the case with many, many bosses. And additionally, I would say he was very respectful to everyone in the organization. He was a role model for inclusive leadership and for respect in the sense that, and I'll give you a very specific example. So if he wanted to reach out to a member of my team to seek their input on on something, he would never do it without giving me the heads up. Or asking about it, right? And that's a a small thing, but it's really important. And it really demonstrates, I think, respect very, very wholeheartedly. So every way that he treated people in the organization, no matter who they were, no matter what level they were at, no matter where they were in the world, was always about inclusion and really creating that environment where people, including myself, felt valued and felt trusted. So my best boss ever was the first boss I ever had. And it's actually not just one boss. It was the entire C-suite and management team. I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Modern Dance at the University of Utah. And the week I graduated, I went to Las Vegas just for audition experience. And I auditioned for this $100 million show at the MGM Grand. I was selected as an original cast member, basically (laughs) insanity uh, at the largest hotel at the time in the world and the largest show that had ever been produced. So they were my best boss, being that we were, you know, in an entertainment department. So we had our direct reports and our, you know, our our choreographer, our our artistic director, the director, the producer, there was this yin and yang, there was this perfectionist, you have, you know, quality assurance, the show, the everything had to be perfect. But the C-suite, the management team, had implemented policies that absolutely gave every single employee, 7,500 employees at that site, confidence and security in our wellness and well-being. We had the largest stage in the state of Nevada and bigger. it was a bigger stage than any of the stages in Broadway. Like the sets would not have fit on any in any theaters right. in New York City. And we had all this dry ice and we had, you know, all these special effects and fire and blah, blah, blah. And so the HVAC system in the theater was so large and complicated that when it, we had a dry ice curtain wall. So because the stage was so big, they didn't have time to like have curtains close and they like do a set change. Mm -hmm. It did it behind dry ice and the dry ice had this chemical reaction when it was super, super hot outside in the desert. And it created its own weather system in the theater and it snowed on stage. So (laughs) this happened in rehearsals and, you know, a lot of the long-term dancers that had done other shows in Las Vegas and had a lot of experience, they were like, this is unacceptable. And, and because we weren't union, you know, we, kind of those of us that were newbies, we kind of just went along with what these seasoned professionals were expressing, you know, that this is unacceptable, people are going to get hurt. So long story short, we had this huge, huge show one night, and there were all these famous people from Hollywood and who's who and influencers and media. And of course, that night, it snowed on stage. And so the elder cast members were like, holding their arms up in the wings, like nobody is going on stage. So this whole number 
it was like a three minute, four minute number. Like there's light shows and effects and there were no dancers on stage and no singers on stage. At the end of the show, we went downstairs and uh, all of us who weren't the seasoned professionals thought we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to get fired. Like this is this right. is not okay, right? We just put the nail in the coffin. We're done. <laughs> we're done. We're never going to work in this town again. Right. We, uh, completely like, so C-suite comes downstairs. There were probably 10 men in suits and ties. Accounting was there. Security was there. HR was there. And we were prepared to get fired, our, our walking papers. And instead, the CEO said, I'm livid and I'm embarrassed and you humiliated me. And I want to take this as a teaching moment. I'm going to put that aside right now. And I want to teach you a little bit about economics. You didn't just humiliate me that that's not the point here. I want to tell you how you impacted your colleagues, your serve the beverages, the food and beverage in the theater, the cocktail servers who are not going to make tips tonight. And they went on this whole economics lesson about how our decision, our split second decision impacted, yes, the sweet sweets and probably some revenue and some corporate reputation. But he re- they really focused on how it impacted the totality, the holistic staff and the meet their livelihoods and the, you know, their ability to how it impacted them financially and emotionally. And the best part was the C-suite said, we really want to take this teaching moment to understand and let you know that we're going to work with engineering to ensure this will never happen again. And they pulled engineering down and so engineering then kind of got read the riot act. Like, how could you, how could you have missed that calculation? Right. Dancers in debt jeopardy. And it just became, again, this kumbaya communication. All the silos were broken down. And we had this amazing, it was probably a two and a half hour session to communicate. Coming right out of university, I had no, nothing to compare it to, but now I've had 20 years, you know, in management and other corporate situations, how I can't even imagine that level of patience and that level of commitment to solving problem solving in real time. And the fact that marketing had to go back out to all these guests and say, you know, we're giving refunds and we understood the implications of that. And we all kept our jobs. And we actually had way more respect for our leaders. And we learned, you know, it wasn't just about us and our like, oh, I'm going to fall down and potentially break my spine. But this really impacts every department. And so that singular piece, I think I have in all my years post and in working, you know, transitioning into business and working corporate, it's the single piece that I do not see. I am just floored by that story. It is so cool to me. I've never heard anything quite like it. My career started as an engineer at Chrysler. What I, I've i never seen in the way that you said that story, we were so siloed that anytime there was a problem, it was more who to shoot. Yes. Christine. It was the who do you shoot. What I really think is so powerful in the story, the way you gave this example is like, it sounds like they brought everyone together. And then they said, like, I need you to think about how you're you're impacting things. But then they turn to engineering and they go, I need you to think about how you're impacting things, you know, that they recognized all of how everybody influenced that, that big giant fail. Everybody failed that night. 
when I thought about, you know, what made him such a great boss was really the notion of allyship. One of the things that he was really able to help me do was to sort of, as a woman, put me in situations where my profile was elevated and I wasn't always thought of as, hey, this is Vasi. She's the social, fun coordinator of things. Or, you know, maybe she'll be the one that will organize the workshop or she'll do kind of, you know, she'll take on some of that administrative role. One of my clients calls that non-promotable tasks. Exactly. You know, I had a conversation with this boss, with him, and I said to him very openly, I I don't want to be this person all the time that's default put into these situations because of, of my personality and who I am and what I project. Like, I am more than that. I'm smart. I'm capable. I have a, a good skill set. That's why you hired me. One of the things he was able to do for me was there was an opening in our company's pension board. And so that was, you know, one of the first times in my career where it was, I provided that desire and feedback to want to be seen and to be able to do something different. And, you know, he found that opportunity for me. And I sat on that board until I left the company. And it was, for me, a very enjoyable thing to do. And I really grew as a leader because it was something completely different and outside of what I would say my normal scope of work and my day-to-day work. I mean, that's a great example because I'm hearing some sponsorship there. So he's advocating for you behind your back, right? With the folks that make decisions. I also hear he's elevating your influence, right? So he's putting you in a position where you actually have more impact and influence, which really is one of the challenges we have, right? In that environment. And third, I think what's really neat about this is I have lobbied time and time again that if we really want to drive the diversity and inclusion agenda, we need to build amazing bosses. It doesn't matter if they're men, women, green, blue, black, we don't care. We just need amazing leaders. And I think sometimes men leaders feel like, what is it that I can really do for maybe a woman or or, or maybe like a person of color or somebody that is not reflected in the organization? And all I want to say is, this is a perfect example of something very basic and small that is allyship. Sometimes the gestures don't have to be grand. They don't have to be sweeping. They have to be little changes where you're able to influence in areas where you can. So then the reflection of that employee base changes over time. It took me a minute, but not much more than that. A woman named Jan Margosian, she was, for lack of a better word, she was just a badass. (laughs) You know, nice powerhouse woman. The word I have to first come up with is authenticity. Now, there's so many words that get thrown around. That's one of them. And then it gets thrown around so much that it loses its meaning. But this is what it means in the context of Jan. What she was thinking, what she was feeling, and what she meant was exactly what she said (laughs) and what she did. So if she was angry with you, it was clear that she was angry. What she wasn't doing was telling you that you were worthless. What she was angry about was something that you did. And she was going to then invest her time in correcting, informing, supporting, improving, whatever was called for, she was going to then take that step. And I think that was actually a big differentiating factor. This was a no shame leader. 
She was not out to shame you. She was out to do better, always. I remember not being in fear about anything. It was like, oh, I mean, I might have felt disappointed. Of course, there's anxiety, but not that fear that I'm not enough, that I'm going to be punished somehow, that I'm a bad person and not worthy of this job or anything like that. It was just that behavior wasn't the best behavior or we didn't get the right outcome and we're going to fix this together and we're all going to learn in the process. That's an ongoing theme. So if you listen to the, you know, 60 some episodes, there's this reoccurring theme that shows up around how people have the right to give difficult feedback and it always comes back from a base of the person knew they cared. Like they knew they cared about them personally and then the the difficult feedback was easy to deal with. And so there's just this reoccurring theme because you hear, you know, leaders give difficult feedback and then they, they hurt people in the process and they don't know why, but if they don't have that base of that person knowing that they care about them and that's the purpose of their blunt feedback, it's like, you know, that's the game changer. When I first started, you know, as we all do, it's all about kind of gaining confidence, gaining traction. And this boss named Dan was incredible at What I'll say is believing in me more than I believed in myself really elevated not only my performance, but the performance of the the organization. And I think what he realized at a very practical level was that small failures were easy to recover from. And so obviously, when you kind of put people out on a limb and let them stretch maybe beyond where they think they're initially capable of stretching to, you're going to have some broken branches and some missteps, but ultimately, you're going to succeed a lot more than you fail, and you're going to easily recover from those failures. And I think he made himself extremely approachable. So it almost it became a point where I wasn't worried about letting him know if something went wrong. I was ex- almost excited. I, I better talk to Dan about this because he's going to help fix it. There was never going to be this sense of fear or judgment. So that that was helpful. I think there were just a number of situations where if I was, you know, as, as like a 23, 24 year old at a pretty junior level working behind the scenes, when I was explaining a concept to him or how, you know, this was early 2000s and you know, we were doing a lot of analytics work on, on websites that were pretty new at the time, I'm dating myself now. And as I was, I was kind of explaining to him how, for example, a website was performing based on, you know, the early forms of Google Analytics, at some point he was just like, well, you don't need to explain it to me. You'll come to the client meeting, you'll explain it to everybody. And so that was, it was almost like, here, why go with this broken telephone approach? You know, you're perfectly capable of articulating this. You'll join us in the meeting. So all of a sudden I find myself kind of, I'll say, punching above my weight class to use another sports analogy, where I get to be in the room and I'm there, I'm, you know, I'm there to deliver this one particular point, but now I'm in the meeting with the full team and I'm getting to, you know, learn by osmosis and pick up what's going on and, and kind of get to know the dynamic at more senior levels. And so it was invaluable learning. And I've, and I've said to many people, if, I, if there's one piece of advice, it comes from that, which is become an expert on one thing that maybe your boss or your colleagues aren't quite as adept at. Because that's going to get you into a lot of rooms that you might otherwise not uh, get into. But it takes a certain level of vulnerability and humility from that leader as well to accept that and to and to believe and, and empower uh, young team members. So now when we started talking about best bosses, can you think of some that maybe didn't rank as best bosses? <laughs> and what were some of the lessons that you learned from those leaders? One thing is the huge takeaway that I've had is that 
you can learn something from a bad boss almost as much as you can learn something from a really good boss. One other thing that I would like to point out that I've learned from her was, again, her ineffectiveness of her communicating with staff was also a result of managing her stress levels. Now, you and I know people handle stress in many different ways. And I'm not here to say that I'm an excellent manager of stress. I'm just saying I know that there are so many ways to manage it. And I think we could agree there are certain ways that probably aren't productive. And she chose that route. For example, we would come out of a major meeting with the top level directors. And maybe it was announcing a new product. Maybe it was uh, doing something that required a short amount of time. And they wanted it to be done completely in, in a vacuum time frame that is maybe a little unachievable, but nonetheless, it's your job. We got to get it done. She would come out of that meeting, get the staff together, and literally yell at them. I'm talking like a yell as if you're reprimanding a child and saying, you better do this. You, you're talking to grown professionals in an industry that this is what they were hired for. And she treated, yeah, she beat them up literally. And then this was the best part. Then she would turn to me and say, okay, let's go to lunch. What do you feel like having for lunch? <laughs> and I looked at her like, she, you're bipolar. I mean, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she literally went, oh, something. <laughs> so, actually, you know, I'm just going to kind of pause there for a second. So as soon as you say you have somebody with an extraordinary amount of IQ, Sounds like failing a bit on the EQ, but what I like is you're sharing kind of the strengths and what you learned from the strengths and the weaknesses and what you learned from the weaknesses. It just, it, it's interesting to me because it does raise that question of, is it smart for employees to really understand how to see what the best attributes are of this boss and to forgive a little bit of the, the not best, right? Because sometimes we put people on a pedestal that they can't ever reach. So, you know, your point is extremely well taken. And for me, this was a constant conversation that other employees would have with me, which I was yelled at a few times, but I would let her know that it was unacceptable. And I would take her aside. I never did it in public. I would ask to speak to her in her office and I would throw it back at her and say, you know, I just want to let you know, I fully understand the goals that you need me to achieve. However, I don't appreciate the way you delivered them. And maybe that wasn't your intent, but I want to let you know the way it was received and the way you did it in public may have not been the best choice for me. And I'm just letting you know, because you may not see it that way. I think it's about ego. Because that, that boss was always competing with me to try to make himself feel good, to put himself up. And one time I'll never forget, we I actually introduced him to a client of mine, and it was a group of clients that came to the meeting. And he was putting me down in front of my own clients and it was just like, I could not believe what I was hearing. And so, you know, when somebody's ego is more important than the client or me, it's just, it's incredible what that will do in terms of destructiveness. And so, you know, I, I left that relationship and, you know, that was really why, because I want to have a boss competing with me. I, I do a fair amount of yoga. And in yoga, they say, if there's somebody who is giving you a particularly hard time, you have to ask what they're there to teach you. 
And so if you take that question, like, I don't know that I've ever had like a bad boss or somebody that I would, you know, explain that way, but I've certainly had frustrations. And so when I look back on those now, I think the biggest takeaway that I've gotten from those experiences was you have to stop working for your boss and start working for yourself and focus on your work and what you accomplish instead of working for the praise or the acceptance or the feedback from somebody else. You have to you have to let the work serve that purpose for you. Like I have to work for the work and then let the recognition come instead of working to try to be recognized and then not stopping to sort of recognize myself what's being accomplished. You know, only a bad boss can really teach you that. Don't look here. Look at what's in front of you. Don't look to that person specifically. Unfortunately, we all have not the best bosses sometimes, but I've had mostly very good bosses. But uh, when I think about a couple that that weren't so great, there are a couple things that really stand out to me. The first is the flip side of what I mentioned about my best boss, which is not taking the time to get to know you and not understanding what motivates you, not understanding what you like or dislike, not understanding how to manage you appropriately. And this is something I've learned over the years as a boss myself, is that you really do need to understand that what motivates other people may not be what motivates you to start. And it certainly may not be what you expect motivates individuals. And that does not lead to a positive outcome. I think what that leads to is that you don't necessarily feel valued or trusted and therefore your productivity and your commitment can suffer. Right. You know, that makes so much sense to me because I find sometimes when I'm coaching different leaders, if they're very driven by money, they'll go, well, I don't have to tell Jane she did a good job because she's getting paid good enough to know that she's doing a good job. And I'm like, yeah, but Jane might not be as motivated by the bonus check as she is by the fact that you acknowledge her dedication in that moment or the the great work she delivered or the she appreciates the verbal, you know, hey, that that strategy is brilliant, you know. Uh, sometimes it's just that little bit, but if if the leader thinks, well, I don't need that, then they just assume everybody else on the team doesn't need that. Exactly. And then what happens is that you're you're not only going to have employees who don't feel valued or trusted, but engagement as well will drop. That's exactly right. You know, we as bosses and we as people reporting into bosses really need to, to think about what those factors are. I mean, somebody might want a promotion versus a raise. Somebody might want more responsibility and no raise. You know, somebody might want more exposure. You know, there there are so many different aspects of how people wish to be developed or to grow their careers that not to take the time to truly appreciate or understand that just doesn't work. I I think in my career there are two areas I would focus on. Um, one is micromanagement. I think that is really a symptom of leadership control and wanting to feel like you always have to micromanage or control things. Really, for most employees, or at least in my case, I've learned I shouldn't do that because it's really counterproductive in terms of how you want your employees to show up and deliver their work. And so, you know, my key takeaway when I've had bosses like that was, like, don't do that. You know, don't feel like you have to control all elements of everything that's going on. Give employees the ability to to breathe and and trust 
that they can do their jobs. I think the second one for me, and I've learned some of the best bosses do this and and some of the not great bosses do this is temperament and how you show up to people. And, you know, the higher up you get, it's you really want to be a person that manages the ebb and flow of life, manages the ebb and flow of management and, and work. And, you know, the ones that always had these temperaments that would just go up and down, up and down, like that, that that's a really hard environment to work in because you're always wondering, who am I going to get today? And so the the takeaway from that, if I take it from like what the worst boss was, was really working on being a leader that is the opposite of that, that, you know, having a consistent demeanor and temperament, I think is really a skill and something that makes you over time a best boss versus a, you know, I don't want it to be black and white versus a, a, a the worst boss. But those those are really the two areas for me that I've either lived and experienced and then and learned from it and and taken from those experiences. I really like what you just said. I think this is a powerful point that I just want to drive home. Consistency being a skill. I just had an aha moment when you said that. Well, and we don't talk about consistency enough in, in life either. Like, you know, you get to be good at things because you're consistent. Like, do you wake up around the same time every day? Do you make your bed every day? You know, do you do things a certain way? And when you have that, I know those are small examples, but when you have that consistency, it does build that, like, I call it like that muscle of who you are to then you end up doing it and you don't even think about it maybe five years down the road. And so I I work really hard to be consistent. It's a hard skill, you know, you, but you have to really work at it. It's not something that I think, to your point, Christine, that we're always aware of. But it's like if we're consistent, at least maybe in temperament or approach, or you're open with people to say, hey, you know what? I'm probably not having a good day today. Just know that and and communicate it. But at least you're then consistent to know that, you know, uh, things maybe haven't bothered me the last three days, but I'm just not having a good day today. And uh, I really, I'm with you. I think we don't focus on that at all in leadership. And we get a lot of leaders in positions where they're they're really not consistent. Well, first and foremost is lies. I mean, that that's just so foundational to the extent that humans are economic animals. You know, we are driven by incentives. And there are people who are promoted in spite of or because of. Listen, I, I don't know about you. I've come across far too many situations of executives who were promoted at least once or more times to move them from a place rather than to a place. And the bigger the organization, the more options you have so you can spread the toxins around. It's not only not fair to all the people that come encounter with that person who is not fully realized in their maturity, but that you're robbing them of the ability to have accountability. I recently fired a personal trainer. He was relatively new. I thought that he might have the skills to do it, but he showed up late twice. The first time he showed up late, I made it very clear to him that a priority for me was that if I was going to meet him and pay a significant amount of money and time that I expected him to show up early and that I too would show up early and actually warm up and prepare so that we could maximize that, that hour that we had together. Because for me, you know, the exercise is part of my job. It's part of my, you know, performance. And he showed up late a second time and I wasn't, I was not going to talk to him about it. I was not going to, we're not going to have any kind of conversation. You fired yourself 
That's what I told him. And he wanted another chance. And there was a reason why it doesn't matter. There's always a reason. reason. Right. There's always a reason. And I said, so now I'm not going to go around the gym and badmouth you, but you deserve early on in your quote unquote entrepreneurial, I'm a trainer mode, you deserve accountability so that you will always remember this day when your client told you you were fired at a bench press (laughs) and you will never forget it. And I doubt you're going to be late again. Right. You, you delivered him a favor, whether he knows it or not. I didn't tell him he was a worthless trainer. I didn't tell him that he was, you know, he had no future. So you're going to do great with other clients and you're going to do great in part because I was honest with you today. So I can't give away what I don't have. And people like that and other friends in my life, people that I have, have taught me what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that kind of message. Since I'm in the business of leadership development, I'm always getting challenged with what's the return on investment for working for a great boss versus a not great boss. And so people always want numbers and cents, and that's actually very hard to do. But I'm curious, like if I ask you, what's the return on investment for a business to have a best boss versus a not best boss? What do you think? Well, I think like we talked about, people aren't checkers pieces and they're not, you know, just a quantity of hours. And I think the best bosses bring out the best quality in those people. When the first boss I alluded to, uh, Dan became the president of the organization. At one point, the first kind of all staff meeting he had, he said, look, I'm asking everyone here at all, all levels to question everything we're doing, not in a disrespectful way and not in a, in a wasteful way, but to just be willing to question every process, every step, every, every operation, because we don't have visibility to everything that everybody does every day. But you do. So question, if you don't feel it makes sense, question it politely and respectfully. You might be told, oh, this is why we're doing it. We're going to continue to do it. But we may find two, three, four processes, operational details that we can fix because of those questions. Sure enough, we did. And we, in the span of maybe two or three months, probably cut about 10% from our cost base, just from finding efficiencies by just empowering everybody to feel a sense of ownership. There was a certain approachability now in that president's chair where anybody felt like, hey, I can go and talk directly about this small, minute problem. Just that sense of empowerment increased profitability for the company right away. And so that's, I think, one practical example where just being open and approachable it makes a huge difference. Well, turnover is expensive. So first and foremost, right? So if you're if you are thinking about what it costs in terms of recruiting fees, what it costs in terms of training, so any skilled professional takes at least six months to get up to speed. So you can imagine half a year's wages are being invested every time you have to hire somebody new because you have someone in place who's not a great leader and not retaining their talent. On top of that, there's the less quantifiable but very important impact of the alumni network of your company. And you want the alumni network to be feeling positively about the organization. Maybe the, maybe they were trained really well. Maybe they're still in touch with their old boss. You don't you don't want a team that is skilled and can't leave. You want some turnover. Obviously, you want to see people move on and grow. But what you want is a fond affinity for your company because that's your employer brand. I think a lot of times we forget that just because somebody has left our organization doesn't mean they've left our social circles. Doesn't mean they're not still friends. Doesn't mean they're not just on a different Slack channel with your team. So to be sort of negligent as people are leaving or not thinking about how alumni feel can be a pretty big mistake. And that's where a boss has such a uh, primary impact on how people feel about the company. 
there's some research out there that I would encourage the listeners to take a look at, which is done by Deloitte a few years ago. And it's the six C's of inclusive leadership. I utilize it a lot in, in, in my work, and I'll tell you what they are. The first is courage, which we talked about as well. The second is curiosity, which really links back to learning agility. And then you have collaboration, the ability to work with different types of people across an organization. Cultural competence, which is an aspect of inclusion that, in my experience, is less talked about than others, but really understanding from a global perspective, but also from a within our country perspective, the different cultures and how people behave accordingly and to be conscious of that. The other one is commitment. So being committed to being an inclusive leader, actually taking the time and the energy to do so. And then finally, and these are not in any particular order, it's actually quite a wheel the way they describe it, is cognizance. And that is cognizance of our own strengths and our own development areas. And from an inclusion perspective, specifically being cognizant of our own biases, both of those that we understand and know and are conscious of. And then, of course, taking the time to learn those that are unconscious biases. I would say if it were a business and you were worried about retention, having a boss like Jan means you're going to have incredible retention and recruiting power. Because here I am, I mean, how many years later? I mean, this has got to be, I'm looking back now, it must have been at least 25 years ago. I don't, I don't know the exact year. It was a long time ago. And I'm still talking about her, using her as a model when I when I evaluate other leaders and when I think about my decisions as a leader, I still think of her as this model. So it's hard to really quantify the impact of one person like that. I have to say, I, I think in terms of the lingering brand of that agency in that department for me, even though she's long gone from there, is that I have a positive image of that because of her. So we love data, but stories are data too. I think that in terms of in the brand world, and I've worked in the branding world as well, you know, when you create an emotional positive connection with an entity because of positive interactions with people, it's almost hard to put a value on that. There's leaders that are listening to this show right now, and they're aspiring to be best bosses. They probably already are if they're listening to the show in the first place, but <laughs> they're on their way, right? So what would be some of the wisdom that you would impart to them? you know, as we kind of wrap this session up. To be a great leader, you have to keep the focus on your team and you invest in them and you put them first. It comes back to you without you having to press for your own needs. But it has to start with with giving and putting your focus in the right place. Well, we've talked about, I, and I'm about to write an article about this, that empathy is the supremacy principle. Empathy and listening right behind it. And then curiosity. We talked about managing our egos and our emotional needs, and we talked about mindfulness, being present, paying attention, guiding your own attention and guiding the attention of your team. Right? So you know, okay, I need to be focused, but actually as a leader, a huge part of our job is focusing the attention of our teams. How do you make people feel? You know, mantra and leadership, right? How do you make people think, feel, and act? But the feeling piece is underrated to your point earlier. So are we thinking about how we make people feel post our interactions with them. People coming up, they don't want to just do it because you tell them. They want to do it because they're inspired and they feel like they want to do it. You know, I, I would just say that I encourage everyone to 
continue to learn as a leader. I think you know, even myself, 25 plus years in the work world, I learn something new every day. And I would just encourage everybody on this call to, to take that time to do so because, you know, an hour spent, let's just make this up an hour a day learning versus any other way of spending your time in the office or however your, your role plays out is worth its weight in gold. If you do want to be a best boss long-term, it's really understanding people individually and where they come from and what their motivations are. And I think some of the best bosses know, like, I'm a certain way from a leadership perspective. I do things a certain way, but not everybody else does it. And that's okay. But then taking the time to understand, you know, why do they work this way? Where does their motivation come from? Like, what drives them every day? And, And I think once you start to understand that, I think you over time start to become a really good boss. We hear a lot of words like empathy, even feedback is meaningless until you give it a real def. I've described what it means for me in these contexts, but it means nothing unless you're talking about the context of things. So relying on platitudes for leadership is we're just buried in information is not where it's at. It's really so even authenticity, it's like, okay, yes, be authentic, but Keep searching for what it means to you, but really get feedback, develop an environment where you have people who will tell you the truth because the higher up people go, the harder it is for them to get the truth. You have to work hard. If if there's a graph, it's like the higher up I am, the more I have to work to get honest feedback. I have to really convince people that it is truly not only safe, I have to incentivize people to give me. So that means I find people who will give me the truth. I really listen to it. I take it in. I process it. It may not be actually valid for me. (laughs) Okay. It may be more about them than me, but I take it in and I follow up. And one of the best ways to start learning how to do that is through just the easy, well, the so called easy one, which is, when people help you or giving praise or re- how you receive praise. So start with the positive to get more comfortable with that kind of direct dialogue. And then you will build a relationship. Number one built on, you know, it's very hard for people to give praise really other than, you know, attaboy or, you know, you know, it's like, like deep, genuine, like praise. genuine. Yes. So you practice, what is it that you appreciate about a particular colleague of yours specifically and why, and what did it mean to you and go that second level to say, Hey, Christine, I want to explain to you what it meant when you stepped in for me at that meeting last week, I noticed that you changed the presentation for the better that you gave. I gave you that template and here's the feedback I got from other people. And this is what it means to me and frankly, to us at this point where we can move forward, like giving that full and then your job as a leader is to be able to take it Mm -hmm. and not That's probably equally as hard. (laughs) So both of us have this role. So whatever role you're in receiving or giving, go all in on it. That's an opportunity to get comfortable having direct dialogue that's open and it's vulnerable to do that. Then when you and I have an issue that we need to resolve between us, guess what foundation we're going to have? Right. Rock solid. Yeah. Rock solid. It's, I'm still going to be nervous. That just shows I care, but I'm going to be able to either receive that criticism from you 
or I'm going to be able to deliver a message that's hard to deliver. And with more trust that you're going to, you're going to know that I'm not attacking you as a person. That's, that's what we got to do in every organization, in every community at the government level is facilitate number one, people who are willing to do that work into those leadership roles and then providing the incentives and support for them to do that difficult stuff. So certainly one thing is always, and this is a pet peeve of mine when people use the word I and my a lot versus we and our, I think even, no matter who actually took care of a certain task, just always speaking in we and our is a huge way to, to set the right tone for organizational or team culture. So that's a little detail. Like I talked about earlier, just believing in people, giving them a chance, being comfortable enough that if they, if they do have a misstep or a quote unquote failure, that sometimes with clients or others, the recovering from that is actually more positively impactful than just swimming along as if everything's perfect. So being okay with that and letting people kind of go out on a limb and take a chance because it's going to work wonders long-term to elevate that individual. I think owning strengths and weaknesses, uh, like I talked about, being okay with being imperfect is super important, not having to pretend that everything's perfect and being vulnerable and recognizing that your style may not mesh with everybody on your team as well as others. And so making sure you're still creating a sense of comfort and openness to that, because I've had that myself. I tend to be a little more improvisational, maybe a little less structured, which can be a tremendous strength, but with certain people that also creates a sense of discomfort because of that missing maybe structure or parameter. And so making sure you can provide that when it's needed, but also being open to the fact that that's going to be a source of tension. I think it's important. You're not going to be able to be perfect, but just being humble enough to proactively manage those sources of tension, I think is important. I think it's important not to feel like you're the smartest person in the room. I think that you're not surrounding yourself with the right people if they don't know more than you do in most cases. You want to bring people in that are smarter than you, that you can learn from, uh, and it may not be that they're smarter or more capable in every aspect of a, a job or a business, but at least in some, if not all, I think if you're not learning from the people around you in all directions, that's that's a problem. And there's a certain level of humility that's, I think, required. And then lastly, kind of reiterating an earlier point, I think establishing that foundation of genuine care, because that allows you to then have you know more blunt and direct conversations that are helpful to both sides that don't become personal in a way that they shouldn't. Uh, that it's it could be about the work, not about the human relationship. I do have a couple of favorite expressions. Um, do do share, do share. Careful of the toes you step on today. It might belong to the butt you have to kiss tomorrow. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorites. I've taught that to my kids. It's never, this is one of my favorites and people don't understand what this means generally. It's never what is, it's only what's perceived. So if you thought you did a really good job and your client, your customer, your boss, your company, or anybody else that you work with thinks you don't, it's, you know, it's not, it's not a uh, screaming match that says, you know, how wrong you are. It's like, look, they perceive it as not a good thing. And even though you think it is, doesn't really matter what you think. It's what's, who perceives it. Oh, if you think you did really good at your job and your numbers are up in sales and your customers like you and your boss comes in and says, listen, I talked to a bunch of your customers. They don't like you. What makes you think that your customers like you? No, I don't know. I kind of thought I was doing a good job. Well, they don't perceive that. And I, and I stole that <laughs> perception. You know, they don't perceive that. So I said, all right, well, it's never what I think or never what is. It's only what they perceive. That's really helped a lot. And I think for me, at least, 
Christine, the way I've identified what in essence makes a quality or, or, or good boss or even just some type of leader is number one, they should have effective communication. You really need to be able to effectively listen and be able to communicate to your employees, to your fellow staff members, or whoever it is, just to provide clear instruction. You have to really be able to understand their needs and concerns. So I really believe that's one of the top for me. You also have to have the, I guess, empathy. You have to be able to really have that ability to understand and manage, to be able to respond to your team, to your people, uh, because at the end of the day, we are all humans. And we all need to be able to understand that. And that's what we always have to maintain in terms of our communication, at least, again, the way I, I see it. And lastly, you really have to be fair. You have to have fairness. You have to be have a high-level integrity uh, because at the end of the day, you're making decisions that impact other people's lives, the business that you're running or the business that you're working for. And you really have to have your team or your people confiding you because at the end of the day, everything is about teamwork and a leader or a boss is just kind of the figurehead or the person responsible for getting things done. So I think those three, in my opinion, are what identifies a quality leader. Listen to your people. So if you, if you create an environment where you are open to feedback, discussion, people challenging you, people raising things with you, you will become a better people manager and a better boss over time. Thank you so much. This was amazing to get your perspective. And I love the story of your best boss. If you want to hear more, join me at christineleperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.